Please stand with me as we read our scripture passage for today, which is from Philippians chapter 4, and we read from verses 2 through 9. Philippians 4, 2 through 9. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together, with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Well, good morning again. Uh, If you were here last week, you saw we took a little topical turn last week. This week, we're getting back into just walking through the book of the Philippians, the book Paul's letter to the Philippians, and we're, Lord willing, going to finish this book next week, and then we're going to take two weeks to focus on Thanksgiving, as is our tradition here, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, and then after that, we're going to focus on prayer. Like, like I said earlier, uh, today is a day where we pray for the persecuted church. We've just chosen to put that, I've chosen to put that sermon off a couple weeks so that we can get through Philippians without any more, uh, without any more pauses, and then after the sermon on prayer, we're going to begin our Advent series in, in the Gospel of Matthew. So that's where we're going, but to get our minds back into the book of Philippians, uh, I want to remind you that Paul has this, he has this tendency uh, to, when he writes, to first focus on orthodoxy and then focus on orthopraxy. So that means he focuses first on right doctrine, what we should think, before he ever talks about what we should do. And this really does make Christianity different from every other worldview that you're going to study, you're going to be around, but you feel this transition in this text. You can feel this transition from Paul as he mines the depths of Christian doctrine and climbs the peak of Christian truths. All of a sudden, it feels like there's this fire hydrant of (laughs) to-dos. In our passage, we have eight verses and six commands, six things that we need to do. And I'll be honest, when you get to the end of Paul's, uh, Paul's letters, it gets harder to preach because it's harder to find the main point. What is Paul doing in this passage? But it doesn't mean that it's not there. It just takes a little more work, I think, to get at it. So Paul is writing to a church that is under extensive pressure, both internally and externally, and this church is beginning to fracture. Okay, they're not falling apart, but you're seeing, you're seeing cracks in the walls of the relationships of the church. And you see this right off the bat in our text when he says, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And we don't know what exactly this disagreement was, but, but I think it's a significant thing that he names them in his letter. <laughs> I mean, 
you don't want to be somebody typically that's named in one of Paul's letters. I mean, we don't even want to be someone that's named in a sermon. And, and I thought about coming up here, I don't know you well enough to do this yet, but, but saying something like, we all know that there are two godly women in this church and they can't get along. And those two people are Pam Mitchell and Angela Davis. <laughs> and, and I'm saying right now, we need to stop it and get on with the mission of the gospel. I mean, if I did that, maybe 10 years from now, I'll do something like that. But I mean, the sense of awkwardness and tension would just rise. But I think emotionally, we need to enter into that because that is exactly what Paul's doing, except he's not just announcing it to, to one church. He's announcing it ultimately to the rest of human history, <laughs> that these two women couldn't agree. And, and I have to say, I do feel a little out of my depth uh, teaching to you about peace, following uh, you're a church that has been pastored by a guy who has devoted 15 years to peace, church peace, and, and literally wrote the book on peace in the church. <laughs> so I know those are big, big shoes for me to step into, but I think it's really timely at the same time to be able to reorient ourselves on one of the core values of this church, which is peacemaking. Because if there's ever a time we need to guard the peace of the church, it's in a season of transition. You know, we can think of transition as simply like, well, there was Kurt, now there's Jim, the transition's done. But transition really is a season. And if you were at the family night last Sunday night, and by the way, thank you for all of you who came to that family night. I, I was amazed at how many, how many more people came than I expected to see at a family night on a, on a Sunday evening. But you heard me talk a little bit about this transition, and I, I have had people give me feedback on my tenure here at Orlando Grace Church, and I, and I appreciate all the feedback that I've gotten. But some people, you know, some people have come to me and very, very appropriately said, Jim, I just feel like there's a lot of transition going on. <laughs> I just feel like there's a lot of changes, and I'm not saying they're bad. I just think they're coming a little quick, and I'm trying to figure out how to deal with these changes. And so I said that Sunday night, and I've had people since then come to me and say, really, I haven't noticed one change. <laughs> and I was kind of wondering when they were going to come. And so neither view is wrong, but we have to acknowledge in seasons of change, we just, we process change differently. We're wired differently. And on top of that, we have an enemy who wants to see that the church falls apart. And I don't think there's a, there's a better time to come in and disrupt the peace of a church than in a time of transition. And this, this was only uh, solidified in my mind this week. I had lunch with a pastor in, in town who's a lot, lot more experienced than me. And I've admired his work from afar for some time. And he looked at me and he said, Jim, at the end of the day, the people of Orlando are no different than other big cities. The churches are no different. The pastors are no different, but for some reason, churches in Orlando do not thrive. Pastors fall, pastors get sick, churches split at a higher, a higher percentage for all the churches that exist here than other cities around, around the world. And he said, Jim, the only thing I can attribute this to is that we have an enemy who is for some reason able to work in this city in a very unique way, and I don't, I don't want you for one second to think that your church is any different. And I appreciated this. I, if he's right, and I tend to think that he is, then we need to be on guard for peace in the church during this transition as much as ever, if not, maybe if not more than ever. So when we go to this text, what I don't want is us to think we're a peaceful church, because we are. 
so we don't need to hear what Paul has to say about peace. I want us to come to this text and believe deeply we need to hear what Paul has to say about peace. And in this passage, Paul tells us how we find peace, how we nurture that peace, and then the effect that that peace is going to have on us. So first, how we find this peace. We get this peace through prayer. And and I'm going to have to go roundabout through this text to get there, but I want you to know where we're going. We get this peace through prayer. And remember, I said there there are six commands here, and we're going to see four of those commands simply in verses four through seven. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, first command. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, second command. Rejoice and be reasonable. You could also say be gentle with each other. So this is what Paul wants. He wants a church that is joyful, that has its reasonableness or its gentleness on display, but he knows there's something coming in and hindering the Philippian church from experiencing that joy and that reasonableness, and that thing is anxiety. And you see that in the very next verse, third command. Do not be anxious about anything. I want you to experience the joy and I want, that you're supposed to in the Christian life. I want your reasonableness to be on display. Anxiety is causing you not to experience what, what you're supposed to be experiencing. And what you need is peace. That's what I want for you. So anxiety. I want to, we talked a little bit about this last week. <laughs> anxiety is the opposite of peace. If, if peace is a deep sense that God is in control and that things are going to work out the way that they should work out, if that's what peace is, then anxiety is a deep sense that you're not in control of this life, that maybe, maybe there isn't anyone in control of this life and you don't know that things are gonna work out the way that they should. And anxiety is it, it's difficult because it's not something you can just turn off. Okay, I'm sure I'm the only husband in the room dumb enough to have said to his wife in a season of high stress and anxiety, just chill out, <laughs> turn it off, stop being anxious. And I can tell you it didn't go well because anxiety isn't one of those things you can just turn off. And then you, you add to that real chemical issues that can be at play, really deep wounds and scars from our past. And anxiety can get to the point where it's not only out of our control, it's debilitating. It incapacitates us in many ways. And I want to be clear when I talk about anxiety, about what it is, okay? Anxiety is not normal concern for your life. It's a normal thing to have concern about how your children turn out, if you're going to meet uh, your financial goals, if your, your health is going to remain okay. I mean, those are general life concerns. Paul had them, we have them, they're okay. It becomes anxiety when those concerns begin to hijack us, when they begin to debilitate us. That's when it's anxiety. And I even want to go so far as to say simply being anxious is not a sin. Because Jesus was terribly anxious in his ministry. You remember right before he went to the cross, he was so anxious about what he was about to do that he sweated blood. Being anxious isn't sin, but we see in that moment, Jesus did exactly what Paul is telling the Philippians and us that we are to do in our anxiety. Jesus prays. In Luke 22, Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. That's what Paul wants. Prayer is the path to peace. And in our anxieties, he wants those anxieties to lead us to prayer. 
And that's why he says, as clearly as he knows how, in in verse 6 in our text, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. So anxiety in itself isn't sin. It's sin when we don't bring it to God, when we don't bring it to the one who actually is in control of everything. And I appreciate, you know, the way that Paul adds this phrase, because the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. We are to take everything to the Lord and, and not just with this, this naive hope that maybe, maybe he'll listen to us, but with this guaranteed sure hope that the Lord is at hand. And, and there are differing views on what exactly it means that the Lord is ha- at hand. Some people think it, Paul means the Lord is about to return. Other people think that it means the Lord is imminently close. He, he's very close to us somehow in proximity and easy to speak to. I think both, you could make a good argument for both of those uh, because both actually do address the issue of anxiety and they both lead to peace, but I tend to lean towards the latter. I think Paul is saying the Lord is imminently close. He's near. You can talk to him about anything. You can go to him about your children, about your finances, about your friends. You can go to him about your health. He is imminently near. He's at hand. And I want to caution us when, when we look at this, when we look at Paul telling us to uh, not be anxious about anything. Because it would be very easy to think, well, that's the Apostle Paul. <laughs> I mean, he's just got a unique ability to not be anxious. You know, he just has this higher capacity that I wasn't given. But we need to remember that in verse 11 that we're going to talk about next week, Paul says that this is something he learned. I have learned to be content in all situations. This isn't something he's just uniquely good at. He's learned over and over to take his anxieties and give them to the Lord, and he receives the peace of God. And in our culture, you know, I I began to look at the statistics of anxiety in our culture and and it hit me. I don't need to prove statistically to any of you. (laughs) You all know we live in a culture that has a higher constant state of anxiety than probably any other culture that has ever existed in the history of this earth. And so if anyone needs to hear about what we should be doing in our anxieties, it's us. And if there are any churches that are prone to anxieties fracturing the peace of the church, it's us. And I also want to make one other point really clear. I've wrestled <laughs> for two weeks with this word peace. Um, you know, I, I, at first, I, I really kept coming back to this word unity. Unity. Unity is what Paul's wanting. And one of our pastoral interns said, Jim, Nazi Germany was unified. <laughs> and, and I think Paul is wanting something more than that kind of unification for his church. And I began to see this word peace come up over and over in this text. Because Unity can be forced. Peace or gospel peace, as, as Paul is articulating, that has to be voluntary. And we see in verse 7 that our prayers are leading to this end. Paul says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we receive the peace of God, it guards our hearts, and every commentary agrees that Paul, by using this word that he does for guard, it has a military connotation. In the same way that back in that day, if you had an army outside of your, of your city guarding you, you would be at peace, you would sleep well. And in the same way, when we go to God, he gives us a peace that somehow 
supernaturally guards our hearts from the anxieties and the worries that we're so prone to in this world. So anxiety comes from deeply experiencing the reality that we are not in control of this life. And probably at no point do we experience this reality more acutely than when we lose loved ones. Twice in my rather short ministry, I hope I've got a lot more ahead of me than behind me, twice I've had to tell families that they've lost a loved one. It's the hardest thing that I've ever had to do in my ministry. But in those moments, you can see a dramatic difference between somebody who has had a lifestyle of cultivating the supernatural peace of God and someone who has never really tried to do that in their life. For it, it's a horrible, traumatic event for both families, but there's a very real and noticeable difference in how a Christian who understands what Paul is teaching handles this kind of grief and loss and lack of control in their lives and someone who doesn't know what Paul is trying to teach here. I have a pastor friend who said he had a, a lady in her church who late at night got the knock that nobody ever wants to get. She opened the door. There was a police officer there, and he said, I'm sorry, your husband's been killed in a car accident. And she has tears streaming down her face, and the officer says, is is there anything I, I can do for you? Do you need anything? And she looked at him, and he said, my God is the only one who can do anything for me right now, and I need to be with him. And it wasn't that she didn't grieve because of her loss, She grieved appropriately and she took it to the Lord who she knew was the only person that could offer her peace when she couldn't control the most important things in her life. So we find the peace through prayer when we bring these anxieties to the Lord. But again, Paul's saying this is something that we learn. There's a process here. I don't, have, uh, I don't have an idea that any of you is gonna read this text and hear this sermon and say, thank you, Jim, I will no longer struggle with anxiety. Well done. That, that's not a realistic understanding of anxiety and what Paul's teaching. There's a learned behavior here. And there are some things, even knowing this concept, that we can do, according to Paul, to nurture the peace of God in our lives. So I want to look at that. Two things we can do to nurture the peace of God in our lives. Second point. We can nurture this peace by thankfulness and by thinking. Thankfulness and thinking. So first, thankfulness. So Paul doesn't just say, Pray. He says, pray with thankfulness. And it's easy to think, well, yeah, I'll I'll be thankful after I get what it is I've been praying for. And and when we have this idea, we're we're just showing that we wanna be in control of our lives. You know, we're praying in a way where we're saying, okay, God, here's how you should really run the universe. And when we we aren't thankful and we delay our thanks until we see if God's gonna do the thing that we want for us, then at best, God is a genie in a bottle. At worst, He's nothing more than our errand boy because we have a very high view of ourselves, a very low view of God. One pastor, it was Tim Keller. He said, when we go to God with a thankful heart, we're going to God knowing that he will give us the answer to the prayer we would have prayed if we had had all the information he does. So if we believe that and we're praying to a God that is gonna answer the prayers that we would be praying if we had all the information he does, then we're gonna go into prayer thankful. Because we know, regardless of, of, of what we say, this is going to turn out the way we would have wanted it if we had all the information. And so we're thankful from the get-go. 
but the kind of thankfulness that Paul's talking about, I don't think it's just for something in the future that we might get through prayer. This kind of thankfulness is rooted in something that's already happened at the same time. Remember, the, the goal is the peace of God. That's what, what we want. We want peace in our hearts. We need to remember if we're going to experience that peace and nurture that peace that Jesus came to this earth and lost the constant full peace of God so that we could gain it. He came to this earth and he, he began to be tempted with all the anxieties that we experience. And he perfectly modeled how we're supposed to deal with those anxieties, constantly going back to the Lord, going back to God, receiving the peace, the same peace that we're asking for to guard our hearts. That is until he went to the cross. And, and I want us to really, I want to get our minds into that moment. And I, I want to ask ourselves why is it that Jesus was so anxious before before he went to that cross you know we have examples of church martyrs who went to the cross went to their deaths arguably in some more gruesome ways than even maybe a crucifixion and they went there with boldness and courage so so why are they courageous you know what is Jesus lacking in some way we have people like Polycarp who probably was discipled by the Apostle John. And in his 80s, he was brought into a Roman amphitheater and he was told in front of a large audience, you have two choices. You can deny your faith and live or you can be burned right here, right now. And Polycarp famously responds, 80 and six years I have served him and he has done no wrong to me. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. Why was Jesus full of anxiety and Polycarp full of courage? Because for each of them, what they were walking into, they were two very different things. For Polycarp, death would have been the door to experience the fullness of the peace of God. For Jesus, death was the door that was going to take him away from all of the peace of God. And not only would Jesus lack all of the peace of God he had enjoyed for eternity past, he was going to receive all the wrath of God that we merited for all of our sins. This is why going to the cross is actually a proven medical condition called hematidrosis when your anxiety is so high your blood pressure is so high that capillaries begin to burst close to your skin and it looks like you're sweating blood Jesus experienced that anxiety because he knew for him death was a door to the total lack of peace of God but he did it because he wanted us to be able to experience that peace Jesus lost the peace so that we could gain the peace and because of that we're deeply thankful Second, we can nurture the peace of God through our thinking. All right, look at verse eight. Paul says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So Paul, I think, is saying some very specific things, but he's saying some really general things too. I mean, I think when you read words like think about what's true and honorable and just and pure, he is in a real way saying keep the doctrine clean in your head. Think about good doctrine. Understand who God is, who his character is. Study the whole counsel of God. Keep in your mind who you are in relation to that God. And this obviously 
just underscores the need for us to be listening to sermons and reading books and studying our Bibles and in fellowship with people who are doing the same things. But Paul gives, his list of categories kind of gets more expansive. He, he says, think about things that are lovely and commendable. And, and then it feels like this catch-it-all phrase. Anything that's excellent or praiseworthy, that's what I want you to think about. And so, I mean, really, to, to break out these eight categories, I, I think I could, I could devote all of my sermons for the next 10 years to that end and not scratch the surface. So instead of trying to elaborate on all of these eight categories, I want to look at one way of thinking in this text that will nurture the peace of God that is growing inside of us. And it's going to come from verse 3. Remember, there are these two ladies, Iodia and Syntyche. They can't agree on something. We don't know what it is. And there's somebody there that Paul calls the true companion. And there's debate on who that was. Is it a real person? Is it a pseudonym? Is it the church at large? We don't know, but it doesn't matter for the point that I'm making. Look at how Paul views our role in the ministry of the gospel in verse 3. Paul says, yes. I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. How does Paul view their role in the ministry of the gospel? Fellow workers. And I, and I have to give credit to J.D. Shaw, who in preaching the same text years ago, opened my eyes to this for the first time. Paul, in about a dozen places in the New Testament, calls us fellow workers. In some places, he even says, we, we are the field, we are the work. But he calls us fellow workers over and over again. So if we're the workers, who is the employer? God. And why is this significant? It's significant because at the end of the day, the employer cares more about the task at hand than any employee. As the employees have... have They have jobs to do, but they're not going to take on the responsibility and the concern that an employer is. And some of you, you may own your own businesses. Maybe your name is on the front door or the letterhead or on the side of the building. And if that's true, you you understand that the reputation of your company, the future of your company, the, the financial success of your company, it weighs on your shoulder in a way that no employee can feel regardless of how good they are at their job. I have uh, two brothers-in-law who both own their own companies and I've gotten to see from, from being close to them and, and other people who own their own companies that they're always on the clock. <laughs> you, know, you can't clock in and clock out if you're, if you're an owner. Crises in the business, they don't schedule themselves around your, your sleep schedule or your vacation schedule. You, know, you don't have an employee who probably is going to take a day off the beach on vacation to go to a coffee shop and fix a problem. I don't care how good the employer is, it's different when you're the employer, when you're the owner. So how do we imply this to what Paul is saying here? We are workers in the field. We're workers. And in some sense, we are the field. So everything about who we are and what we're doing, God owns it. God owns it. We are workers who have a real job to do but we're employed by a God who knows no limits to his skills and his abilities. This business, this venture will never fail. We will never be laid off. All the decisions will be the right ones. 
We can go to sleep because he's going to be awake all the time handling every crisis. And when we understand that we are at the end of the day workers with real jobs to do, but workers who don't bear the responsibility of the end results on our shoulders, what is that going to do to the anxiety that we experience? It's going to decrease them. The peace is going to be nurtured. The peace is going to come. The more we understand through our thinking that at the end of the day, we're workers and we work for the perfect employer. So thankfulness and thinking. Those are going to nourish the peace of God that we receive through prayer. And when that happens, there are going to be effects in our life. So I want to finish, third point, by looking at one very specific effect. When the peace of God comes into our hearts, comes into our lives, and sinks in when we nurture it to a very deep level, and the effect of this peace is more conversions. I'm not talking about other people. I'm talking about us. We will experience a second and a third conversion. And before you start to begin to you know, wonder, did we really hire the right person here? Let me explain what I mean. There are people throughout church history, Martin Luther, Abraham Kuyper, uh, actually I think Steve Childers down the road at, at RTS said this the best, but they've all say kind of the same thing. Steve Childers said, to be a fruitful Christian, you need to experience three conversions. Only one is salvific. You, the first conversion you need to experience is a conversion to Jesus Christ. But after that, as you get to know him, you need to experience a second conversion, and that is to his church. And then after that, the third conversion a fruitful Christian must experience is a conversion to the world, the mission of the gospel to the world. And so he's saying we need, to, we need to believe in Jesus Christ, but we don't then need to be on our own. As we get to know Jesus more, we, we get to understand his bride more. We begin, begin to value his bride more. We begin to see that his bride, the church, is a missions outpost working to bring the reign of Jesus into this world in a real way. And as we value that missions outpost, we begin to desire that other missions outposts, other churches would grow. That there would be churches where there aren't currently churches and that's the third conversion, a heart for the world. And that only comes when the peace of God gets into us in a very deep way because we're gonna have to think about ourselves less and about the mission more. So we need to ask ourselves this morning, well, how many conversions have we experienced? Are we here today deeply knowing and loving Jesus, but having a really low value of his church. This was my story for probably the first eight years of, of my Christian life. I, I love Jesus. I was telling people about Jesus, but had a very, very low view of church. I, I'll go when I have time, but it doesn't really offer me anything. And then I had that second conversion. Or are we, do we have two conversions to Jesus and the church, but really our concerns don't, don't go past this local church. Really, this is where our concerns are. We're not really looking at other churches in the city as, as partners in the gospel. Having this, this third conversion, it affects the way that we, we look at everything. John Piper once uh, was, was challenged. Somebody came to, to Dr. Piper and said, I don't understand why this church puts so much resources into college students. They're just here today and gone tomorrow. And Piper looked at him and said, exactly. <laughs> They're here today and gone tomorrow. This is a person who had all three conversions and wasn't just thinking about his local context. He was thinking about where are ways we can give away resources that the world at large will benefit. 
that's an example of someone who has experienced the three conversions that Steve Childers is saying that we need to experience. And that only comes when we're experiencing a deep supernatural peace that's gonna guard our hearts when we begin to give away money and people to churches that aren't ours. So I want us to think about what does that mean having UCF down the road? What does that mean in Maitland and Altamont Springs? What does that mean with RTS and Crew and Wycliffe and all the other organizations and ministries here? What does it mean that we're in the, the, the sixth most unchurched and fourth most dechurched city in the United States? Tremendously behind where we need to be in terms of churches being planted around the city. Only a peace that causes those three conversions is going to get us to be thinking the way that we need to think. And if it makes you feel any better, I don't want you to feel any guilt from, from me to you. This is something I'm constantly having to remind myself of, constantly having to grow in, and in Paul's words, constantly having to learn. So I want to finish by, by praying for exactly this, that we would be a church that would know that through pay, prayer, we can experience the peace of God in any circumstance that we can nurture it through our thinking and through our thankfulness and that we would be a church that is marked by all three of these conversions and that this city and the state and maybe even beyond is changing because of it. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul and uh, I thank you that he's not just this superstar Christian, that, that he had real struggles and that we get, we get to see in this that these are things that he learned over time. Years and years out of the spotlight before we begin to really read about what he's done. And I pray that that would give us encouragement. That wherever we are, we can experience peace in our anxieties. That you desire that. And I pray that we would be comforted where we need to be comforted. But I pray that we would be challenged where we need to be challenged. If we're not thinking the way that we need to think, that it would be challenged, but challenged not by guilt and shame, but by the grace of your gospel and the grandeur of your mission. And so I pray this morning that you would come in here and make this room a room full of Christians who have experienced all three conversions, a conversion to Jesus Christ, a conversion to the value of your church, and a conversion to the mission of the gospel to the entire world. We pray this in Jesus' name.